Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Joining us once again for our monthly emerging markets conversation. Glad to welcome back Alejo Zerwanko, Chief Investment Officer for Emerging Markets Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Alejo, good morning to you. Thank you for dropping by today and looking forward to our conversation. Welcome back. Good morning, Dan. It's always so good to be here. Absolutely. So, Alejo, you're joining us today to talk about your team's monthly flagship report, the latest edition. That title is Investing in Emerging Markets, Equities Attractive, Fixed Income Warrants Selectivity. Though within the piece, it does acknowledge how this year marks the 22nd birthday of the BRICS acronym. Now, we've spoken about the BRICS before here on the podcast, though, Alejo, to start, can you remind our listeners what the BRICS mean and why the recent BRICS summit in South Africa gathered so much media attention? Of course, Dan, as you highlighted, uh, this year we've got the celebration of the 22nd birthday of the BRICS acronym. This is a term that was supposed to capture the economic potential of Brazil, Russia, India, and China at the turn of the century. Interestingly, South Africa was added to the group a few years later. And all in, this became a fairly catchy term, which was a hit in the financial press and quite honestly influenced the perception of emerging markets for a generation of investors. The latest annual BRICS summit took place in South Africa in August, and this attracted attracted considerable investor and media attention, primarily due to speculation that the bloc would contemplate an expansion. And at the end of the day, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Ethiopia, Egypt, Argentina, and the UAE were invited formally to join the bloc. So, Alejo, running with that, this potential expansion, do you think more members make the BRICS block more relevant? Look, I think several observers did welcome the move, highlighting that new potential members would bring resources, increased influence of the block, potentially helping it drive change in areas of common ground, such as the reform of global governance bodies, such as the IMF, the World Bank, the UN, and the dollarization. I think, uh, Dan, I'm quite skeptical that this will be the case. Even an expanded BRICS, I think, will likely remain unable to effectively deliver on the bloc's ambitions, at least if you judge, um, if you use history as a guide, in, in other words, right? The the group's track record of collaboration historically has been poor. Um, Take the example of the New Development Bank. Uh, This is an institution that used to be called the BRICS Bank. This is an initiative that took a very long time to take off. It wasn't until February 2016 that the bank became operational. As of last year, the institution had a paid-in capital of $10 billion. This is a very small figure relative to you know, this country's GDP. And if you think about the amount this bank has lent over the last six years, a total of just $32 billion, almost 70% of this lending is somewhat ironically denominated in U.S. dollars. In addition, if you look, for instance, at trade between BRICS countries, 
the dynamics have been unimpressive over the last decade. Brazil, Russia, and South Africa did see an increase in the share of their exports to the BRICS, to other BRICS countries. Now, when you look at China and India, the share of their exports to other BRICS trended sideways or even decreased over the last 10, uh, 10 years. I think what complicates things further is the fact that these countries share no common ideology. They have no shared political system. As you know, we've got spanning the whole gamut from fairly well-functioning democracies to autocracies. And China and India in particular have a long history of complex relations that at times have been outright confrontational. If you add to the mix a growing number of members, I think this would increase complexity of decision-making. And quite honestly, it will bring often conflicting interest rates. All in, Dan, I think, you know, history doesn't support the thesis that the BRICS will become a, a, an effective channel of, of change in, in areas of common ground, and uh, more members will likely make things a bit more complicated. So, Alejo, some interesting takeaways there, given some of those disconnects, quite notable, factoring in as well the economic track record of the legacy bloc nations. What role may an expanded BRICS play in this environment? We've talked about this before, Dan, on the podcast. I think it is clear by now that the global geopolitical order has evolved from a unipolar one to a multipolar one. The United States is no longer widely perceived to be the undisputed preeminent power. I think China is clearly willing to challenge the global order more assertively. A number of nations that have been labeled as rogue states have become more aggressive as well in this environment. Terms such as middle powers or geopolitical swing states are being used to describe those countries that are seeing an opportunity to avoid picking sides and pursue their interests with flexibility. In this new world, then, an expanded BRICS will play a role. I think it's going to be primarily a symbolic role. If you think about more concrete initiatives, such as the adoption of local currencies to settle trade between the BRICS, this I expect to... uh, enjoy slow adoption, gradual, very slow adoption. If you think about the potential creation of a joint currency between these countries, this seems to me is wishful thinking at this point. With that in mind, from a practical standpoint, putting myself in the shoes of an investor, what are the implications here? What should investors do about the BRICS? Definitely. Taking a step back, the BRICS concept had some influence on financial markets during the early years of the bloc's existence. If you think about the number of BRICS dedicated active and passive funds that attracted capital in the early years of the 2000s. Now, over time, I think investors rightly recognize that the opportunity set in emerging markets should not be constrained by an arbitrary acronym. And so we saw BRICS dedicated money thinning out. Today, I think the concept bears little to no influence in global financial markets. With this in mind, in our view, a well-diversified emerging market exposure should serve investors best when constructing long-term portfolios as a starting point, 
I'm talking about exposure to a range of Latin American markets, a range of Eastern European, Middle Eastern markets, African markets, and of, and of course, um, a sizable exposure to emerging Asia. Now, in addition to this strategic, well-diversified allocation, investors can take advantage of shorter-term opportunities. And if we go through you know, the equity space, for instance, we think there is tactical value in emerging market equities given a fairly good um, growth environment in the developing world plus declining inflation. Specifically, we're positive on Brazil and Chile over the next 12 months. Both countries have kicked off monetary easing cycles ahead of the Fed. We've discussed this in the podcast before. Historically, easing monetary policy in this country has been supportive of domestic stocks. In addition, Brazil and Chile are trading at fairly cheap valuations. Moving on to Asia, we keep India and Indonesia as most preferred markets. These are two markets that I think provide exposure to attractive growth dynamics at a fairly reasonable price. Moving on to fixed income then, um, emerging market bond valuations are today fair. And I think you've got to be more selective uh, in coming months. There are opportunities nonetheless. We find value, for example, on U.S. dollar-denominated sovereign bonds from Colombia, local currency bonds for, from Brazil and Mexico, a range of Latin American corporate issuers um, uh, have, have attracted bonds out there. So no shortage of opportunities, but you've got to be more selective in terms of the credit quality. As, as, you, as you look forward. Um, so putting all together, then I think, you know, you get to start with a well-diversified emerging market exposure from a regional perspective, and then you can add a range of specific opportunities, limiting yourself to investing only in countries belonging to a catchy acronym, such as the BRICS, is not necessarily the best approach. Well, Alejo, very timely that you were able to join us today to shed some light on these developments, speak to the investment implications, and really provide a lot of clarification in terms of what this all means going forward. I do want to, again, point our listeners, our clients, to the publication which Alejo has been referencing to read further into this story, that being the latest investing in emerging markets, the monthly flagship from the team, uh, the title again, Equities are attractive fixed income warrants selectivity. The publication is available up on UBS.com slash CIO, though for clients of UBS, simply reach out to your UBS financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of the publication directly. Though Alejo, great catching up with you as always, and do look forward to picking back up with our Emerging Markets conversation again next month. Thank you, Dan. appreciate the invitation. Have a great day. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways 
and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.